Kickoff for Super Bowl 34. The Titans Rams 2000 Super Bowl, an instant classic. Hours after the game, two men were stabbed in the street, accused of being in the middle, the greatest linebacker in NFL history. Ray Lewis and two friends are charged with murder. The nation's eyes were glued to their televisions. The trial concluded and the verdicts came back. Not guilty. What you can learn from all this is that big cases make for big mistakes. Look what happened to O.J. Simpson. And look what happened to Ray Lewis. Lewis went on to have a Hall of Fame career, but questions around that night in Atlanta still remain. So what do you think they're hiding? They know what happened. They know exactly what happened. After 20 years, it's time to get to the bottom line truth. From Tenderfoot TV, I'm Tim Livingston, and this is The Raven. Listen for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. For ad-free listening and early access, subscribe to Tenderfoot Plus on tenderfootplus.com. Hi, listeners. I'm Vanessa Richardson, host of the podcast Serial Killers. Like many of you, I'm fascinated by the darker side of humanity. What causes someone to develop such deadly desires and why they decide to act on them? For the past six years, I've been able to explore these curiosities weekly, tapping into the mental states of the world's most notorious killers, examining their backgrounds and habits, searching for answers. If you haven't had a chance to check out our show, there's truly no better time to dive in. With hundreds of episodes to binge and new ones released weekly, Serial Killers is the perfect podcast for any avid true crime fan. Follow Serial Killers on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance in the Crawl Space Studios in Wormtown. What's up, Lance? How's it going? It's going great. We uh, talked to a buddy, a, a familiar face, Aaron. Aaron from the Generation Y and uh, a brand new podcast called Framed. A familiar face and a familiar voice. And uh, it was fun to talk to him about this and get the inner workings of Framed. If people haven't listened to it, it's super fascinating. And the work he did and the team that he surrounded himself with for this case was in- incredible. Just a, a huge feat. Yeah, it, w- it was excellent. And and we don't want to play favorites. We had Justin of the Peripheral on, also Generation Y, and so we, we couldn't play favorites and, uh, and not have our buddy Aaron on as well, especially when he's doing such amazing work as he did in Framed. So please check out Framed if you haven't already. It is really excellent. There are links to it in the show notes. Tim, what's going on with our Patreon? Oh, we're up and running, Lance. We are doing a variety show. We're posting crazy videos, and uh, it's a lot of fun. So check it out at patreon.com slash crawlspacepodcast. Okay, follow us on Twitter at crawlspacepod. We're on Facebook and Instagram as crawlspacepodcast. Thank you very much.
Welcome to Crawl Space, Aaron Habel. How are you today, Aaron? Hey guys, how are you doing? We're doing pretty well. Thanks for joining us here uh, via Skype in the Crawl Space studios. Uh, we are here to talk to you about your excellent new podcast called Framed, an investigative story. Yeah, tell us a bit about Framed. What um what what is the show? Uh, Framed was, I guess, it was another way to approach crime cases. And so instead of doing a new case every week, we actually took one case, uh, meaning Jake and myself, we took one case and we got as many documents as we could, which was pretty much all of them. We got the police reports. We read through interviews or listened to them. And in the end, we ended up with all of this evidence and a solution to a case that was unsolved. Wow. Okay. So, uh, how did you get all those documents? Um, well, some you can ask for, but then others you have to submit FOIA requests Mm -hmm. and then others, I mean, sometimes you just have to straight up pay for them. So tell us a little bit about Brian Carrick and the case itself. Uh, well, Brian Carrick, the way that it had always been presented to me was he was a young guy who was very well liked. He would pretty much be there for anybody that needed him. He was especially there for his job. And he had a very large family. Uh, I think there were about 14 kids in the Carrick household. And he was a, he was one of the youngest. And so when he went missing, or as we know from the blood evidence, when he was murdered, you know, a lot of people were concerned. And so the first place people go looking for a suspect is someone who could make that happen? And that's how the case got off to the start it did back in 2002. Okay, so Brian was killed uh, in, a, in a, some kind of like a supermarket type uh, or a small market type location? Yeah, it was a family grocery store. It was known as Val's Foods. And he was uh, 17 years old, and that, that, that's correct, right? Yes, it was in a town, Johnsburg, Illinois. It's outside yep. of Chicago. Okay, and this store was right across the street from his his house, where uh, him and his uh, house full of siblings uh, often worked there as well. Right. You know, the way it was uh, always said was, with that many kids, you can't afford to buy everyone a car, even though the family would have loved to have purchased cars for all of their kids. They just couldn't do that. And so for each of their sons and daughters to actually make their way, and pay for whatever they needed uh, or to save for college, they needed to start working. And with the grocery store across the street and with a friendly owner, um, it was just a no-brainer, really. Just walk across the street. You don't need any transportation, and you don't have to worry about bad weather or whatever. You can just head across the street and go work. And you said that this is a, this is a murder, um, but they have not found any body. That's correct, right? That's correct, but... Brian Carrick lost his life back in 2002 in December. Based on the amount of blood that they found? Yeah, it was the blood evidence. It, You know, just when you think about it, someone doesn't get injured and then just disappear, uh, not with that much blood. You would think that they would be dead, although the body was obviously hidden or taken somewhere and disposed of where no one found it. And that's all part of our search throughout the cases and of course we cover that in the final episode episode 10 what happened to brian carrick where did he go gotcha 
How long was your research uh, in play before you put the first episode out there? Did you have everything uh, done? Your, you know, your your on the boots investigation was that all uh, sort of assembled, and then you started producing the show? Well, when we launched this podcast, it was about a year before we started it, and so we're talking 2017, probably in around September and October. And the guy I worked with, he was the head researcher on this and had the task of trying to put this all together from all the documents. So he had about a year that he was working on this. And even after we launched, he was still working on connecting some dots. Uh, And it's the way it works is you might have a big picture and we often use the word puzzle throughout the podcast. But as you put in the pieces, sometimes you discover that the puzzle isn't going together exactly the way you thought it would. And so we were always open to, wait a minute, I think this piece of evidence might just change how important this witness over here is, et cetera. So as we go through it, um, I would say the thing that we were still working on as we were making the show actively this year was what happened to Brian Carrick. Where could he have gone? And it's really Jake who came up with where he could have gone. And it's really brilliant how he put together eyewitness accounts and just distance and time to figure out here's our circle where he could have possibly have gone in. And so from there it was, where could he be in that circle? And you're talking a, uh, a literal, like a geographic geographical area using Google maps. Yeah. Okay. How did he put together that circle? Just, like a certain mile proximity? Well, a lot of that's covered in the podcast and it'd be, it would probably take me too long to cover it here. But essentially what we do is we figure out who's likely behind this plot, who uh, would have been involved in making his body disappear. And then where were they at that time? Mm-hmm. Okay. What was it about this case that drew you to it? It's the mystery of it. What happened to this 17 year old kid that was very well liked Um, and loved by the people that worked at the store and owned the store, uh, how could he disappear from the very place that he should have been safest at? And so without a body, without a real motive here in the beginning, um, how does this all play out? What actually happened? Because the prosecutor got a conviction, but it wasn't a very good conviction because Kathleen Zellner was able to get the their suspect, their convicted person out of prison. And that convicted person was uh, Mario Casario? Yeah, or Mario Cachero. Um, oh, sorry. Yeah, it's difficult to... Uh, I, I had uh, That's how I pronounced it for the longest time, and I've heard people pronounce it slightly different ways, but essentially it is Mario. And Kathleen Zellner, as we all know from the Stephen Avery case and the Ryan Ferguson case and some others, she is probably the top lawyer top attorney for getting people out of prison. And this this case here, they've never let it go. If you ask the prosecutor or if you ask the news media, many of them, many of them, most of them still say Mario was the guy and Kathleen got him out, but it was basically technicalities and he's still the guilty party. That's what they would tell you. Yeah, but that's the law. That that those are the people who who put him there. Um you know, uh it at first, so I, th- that's kind of a biased uh, point of view. I feel like 
Um, do you get the sense that like a lot of deals were cut behind the scenes, like that uh, that forced this wrongful conviction or, or whatever you may call it? I don't know that there needed to be deals, uh, just because if you look at their original theory, if you just wrote it out in a couple of sentences, it makes a ton of sense. So from that point of view, you can't really say they needed to cut deals. And a lot of people would say, hey, as long as we get that guilty party put away, we don't care how we do it. We just want that person off the streets because they committed a crime and justice has to happen. Mm-hmm. It's when you get into the nitty gritty details and where the players were and what their actual motivations could have been when some people, their motivations were never really looked into, then then you really start to see where this picture comes into focus. Mm-hmm. It seems like such a, a like a a case that's within your grasp to to solve, you know, like and I'm sure uh, from the eyes of the law as well. Be- and I'm sure that's why they haven't let it go, because they know there are people who were involved in some way. It's just the entire picture isn't quite clear, wasn't clear to them. I do believe that by the time they were prosecuting this case, they knew a lot more than they let on, but they already had someone in their focus and it just made a lot of sense. So they didn't want to go in another direction because that other direction may not have panned out as well conviction wise. Although I would argue, Hey, you lost Mario. He's out of prison. You know, he's gotten himself a degree and he's doing quite well for himself these days. You know, you lost the case. Now they would argue we didn't lose it because we got the conviction, but it's not over until it's over. And in this case, it's still not over, except your conviction. That's over. That that was not successful. So does that mean that the case is reopened if the conviction is overturned? No, because they look at it as a successful conviction. Because yeah. they, they just look at it as a point in time. They got a conviction. So yeah. what everyone does after that is out of their hands. And in other words, everyone else failed them. They were successful. They did the right thing. What happened after that is where the failure happened. It's not on them. Mm, yikes. That's not a good way to look right. at it. Right. Yeah. Even if you look and say, well, he- here's how you messed up, and you point out all the things they did wrong, they don't want to hear that. Which you kind of did a lot of times in your podcast. So like, uh, one of my questions is, how was that relationship? Did you work with local law enforcement? Uh, did you speak with them? Did they... Uh, email you afterwards or how did that work no you can't really work with them because and i'm not saying they're all like this but there are key players in that town still who hold to the mario theory and if you say anything else they say that you're speculating or that you're naive or ignorant so there's nothing really to say but you took a really scientific approach aaron and your podcast did i feel like yeah, in, the the frame team did, yes. Yeah, yeah, in in looking at the uh, all the information. It didn't seem biased or speculative to me. Well, as you know from running podcasts, uh both of you 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 know, you have crawl space, uh missing Maura Murray, empty frames. You know that when you go into a case, since you're not a part of it, you can be much more objective. You just want to find the truth. Yeah. Right. Uh, the the team that that you refer to, Jake, and uh, is he a journalist, or are there other people who worked on this with you? No, Jake was actually one of the people that worked at the grocery store, oh. and since we covered the case back in, I think it was two December of two thousand. Well, let me think here. Two 
It was sometime in 2013 when we covered the case, I do believe. And Justin and I really didn't know what happened. We couldn't quite figure it out because what the prosecutor was saying, what the police were saying, didn't quite match the evidence. And so there's some confusion in that. And so I had received a number of contacts since that episode from people who lived in John's, uh, Ah. in the town in Johnsburg. And I would talk to them and most of them believed that Mario did it. But Jake was telling me, I don't think this is what everyone says it is. And he said, I would like to figure it out. Well, fast forward years later and he contacted me and he, he had hit a point in his life where I think he, it just got too much for him. He really wanted to solve this. And so he said, I don't, know exactly what happened, but I believe that they got it wrong. So he started collecting these documents and he didn't actually ask me if I wanted to work with him on this until after he'd gotten most of them. It's at that point that he said, we have a story here and I I want this out there and I don't know if you'd be willing to help me. And uh, I don't have a lot of time. So I said, I I really want to know. I I guess I have to do this. (laughs) Yeah. Sure. I mean, it, yeah, it came out really great. Uh, and it's kind of like like a bit of a social experiment, if you will, because you sort of pre- present all this evidence, um, more evidence than any jury got, um, because you have all of it here, uh, or at least everything that, that you know, you were privy to uh, in in acquiring these documents and interviews. Did you think about doing some kind of like Twitter poll or something like that? <laughs> like, uh, like who who do you think did it? And uh, you know what I mean? Based on based on listening to to the uh, information yeah. that Framed provides, right? Because every essentially every audience member is its own juror, right? So, uh, wh- what kind of experience did you have with that? Well, we didn't really ask anyone, but we've had a lot of people write in through the email and some people writing into the website. And to the uh, the Facebook page and on Twitter, uh, it seemed like most of them came out with, yeah, Mario didn't do this. But we had other people who are very close to the case who believe wholeheartedly that Mario did it. And I would say the majority of them actually came out and said, I didn't get through most of your podcast because as soon as I heard you deviate from the Mario theory... I tuned out because whatever you're going to present after that is a lie. So they're resisting blood evidence? Is that what they're resisting? They're resisting every bit of evidence. That's ridiculous. It is. What is it about Mario that makes people so uh, adversarial against anything that comes out uh, that's, you know, in support of a different theory? What What is it about his character that, or is it his character that is just something that people don't like? What do you think it is? Think about it. As podcasters, and you and I, uh, all, all three of us have experience in this, if you have associated with anybody at any point in time, sometimes that reflects poorly on you, and people will call you out on it, say, you're a scumbag because of this or that. Well, Mario's attitude when he was in school was he was really cocky, and there were people he would walk right past and never even glance at, never acknowledge, and so he had a reputation, and then his family ran a grocery store, and then, I don't know, I think a lot of people just assumed that they were mobsters. So their their reputation preceded them, and when it came down to who murdered Brian Carrick, they couldn't look at anyone but the connections in this family. 
simply because of this preconceived notion that he was arrogant and possibly uh, connected to to mafia ties. Yeah, and stuff like that. And I, I think, yeah. you know, perception rules all. And it doesn't matter if you were to go out and explain to someone your point of view or your stance on something or where you're at now versus three years ago. They don't want to hear it. They've already made up their mind and placed you in a box and then labeled it. And his family was the family that owned Val's? Yes. Okay. Have you heard from Mario or anyone uh, like directly involved in, uh, you know, a potential as a potential suspect? Yes, I have heard from people connected to the case. Um, do you wish to share any anything? Um, let's just say that there was a lot of positive messages coming in simply because they felt that Frame did what local law enforcement couldn't do, which was solve the case. That's cool. That's cool. You should feel pretty good about that. I, I think so because, you know, as I told Jake, it's one thing to know that you have the right person. It's another thing to make every connection and take people every step of the way through the case from beginning to end to back it up with all of this evidence and the timelines and everything. It's it's a huge undertaking. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> as uh, you know, people who do this uh, kind of thing as well. Yes. What you what you did with this uh, show is more of much more of an undertaking than uh, uh, chatting with you about it. <laughs> Uh, here on these airwaves right now it's um, a it's a good process because jake would do the research and then he would you know we would have phone calls and we would share documents and then you know as it went on i'm i'm more of the production and then i'm mm-hmm. also you could say the final edit so as things are put together there are certain things that i will cut or want to add in or approve or disprove disapprove um simply because I have an idea of how this should go out in terms of making sure that it's uh, palatable without just getting everyone angry <laughs> because there <laughs> there are some very uh, inflammatory pieces of evidence and situations that have occurred over time with this case. And so um, Jake just basically gives me all the information and then I decide what goes out and how. Yeah, so the how part of that, like uh, you you bring the audience kind of along with you or w- with you know uh, the case in these twists, you know that that you're kind and you kind of present information as it's needed, and you're like, okay, this is going to change things for you. Boom, here's this information. Um, wh- what went into that decision making process? Like, did you always know you wanted to do that, or? In terms of um, the way it was presented, yeah, like presenting uh, sort of twists in in narrative, um, like you gave people the information when they needed it, when it was time to learn something new. Like, uh, was that like instead of laying out the case in, in episode one and then talking about it, um, was that something that you decided early or? Yeah, it was something that uh, along the way, because Jake's not a writer, um, mm-hmm. but he was able to put the information down in a very good way. But you needed to have some storytelling there. And so that's where, you know, a member of the frame team would look at everything and then say, OK, here's where we need to put this. And then, you know, just it's arranging it so Jake can get all the pieces in there. But even I couldn't have done that by myself. There's no way. I, and, and if I could have, it would have taken me a lot more time. But 
you know, if you bring in someone who's a writer, they can take a look at it and they can quickly figure out, at least from my experience here with this show, um, they can quickly figure out how to place things and where to put them and where to cut them off so that it's bringing the audience along. And as you know, if you can pique their interest, they remember that information even better. Sometime in the early 80s, REO Speedwagon's airplane made an unannounced middle-of-the-night landing. This is my friend Kyle McLaughlin, the star of Twin Peaks. And he's telling me about how he discovered a real-life Twin Peaks in rural North Carolina, not far from where he filmed Blue Velvet. What was on the plane was copious amounts of drugs coming in from South America. Supposedly, Pablo Escobar went looking for other spots, quiet, out-of-the-way places to bring in his cocaine. My name is Joshua Davis, and I'm an investigative reporter. Kyle and I talk all the time about the strange things we come across, but nothing was quite as strange as what we found in Varnumtown, North Carolina. There's crooked cops, brother against brother. Everyone's got a story to tell, but does the truth even exist? Welcome to Varnumtown. Varnumtown is available wherever you listen to podcasts. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Sure. Was that part of the process in your decision to enlist uh, voice actors to read the court transcripts? Because that is a uh, Tim and I both love that concept of uh, the the voice actors really bringing to life something that you wouldn't see. Like there's no way you'd actually see or hear that other than the way you did it, and it's very very uh, consumable and listenable. So what was your uh, what was the process in making that decision? Yeah, it's an interesting thing because at least from where I was, I didn't want voice actors. Jake really did. And then in the end, he won me over. He won some of the audience over, 
But I would say most people, uh, or at least a good portion of them, decided they didn't like it and they didn't give it a chance. Uh, yeah, that's probably why. Um, when I what the one voice on there was quite familiar. I don't know, sounded like a like a older tra- gentleman. Yeah, like a trailer voice. I, I'm not sure what role he played. A, I think a prosecutor or a lawyer, I believe. But uh, was that uh, someone who did trailers or something like that? How, how do you get these actors? Uh, well, it's not too hard to find voice actors. In fact, there are some podcasters who are voice actors as well. And sometimes I wonder if I should be doing that, or or maybe even both of you. But it's one of those things where they're always out there and they're just waiting to be hired. And a number of them, I'd say three or four of them, were pretty excited to be a part of this project, especially after they heard it come together. Nice. Yeah, very cool. It was a a nice touch. You can uh, at least rest assured that on this end of the Skype, it was was a a good way to present the story and we appreciated it. Yeah, and I think uh, the reason it happened was I know that I'm not right about everything. So... When it came down to, are we going to use voice actors or not? I I just let Jake do that because um, sometimes the other person has a better idea than you do. And while I don't know if it was the better idea here, I do know that I really enjoyed it in the end. So yeah. it, it might be the best idea for now. But if we did this again, I don't know if we'd use voice actors or not. I think that's yet to be uh, discussed. No, I think you did it. You did it right. And the the best part about what you did with it was have it in such short increments, like the uh, the back and forth between whoever whoever's on the stand and the attorney, um, w- you know, didn't go on for minutes or whatever. It went on for like thirty seconds, and I think that you know, in very consumable chunks, to me, doesn't really make it arguable uh, the other way. But uh, okay, so so you you you. Admit that you didn't get everything right, um, but you're pretty confident that the podcast has solved the case. Can you take us through what happened in the murder? Well, as far as did I get everything right, um, this was a collaborative project, so I feel like we did pretty much get everything right. It's just, you know, when it, when it comes to making a decision and you're working with one or more people, uh, and I'm sure you've run into this, sometimes you hit kind of a wall and then... You know, because you all have the same end point you want to get to, you just have to find a way to make it work. And so it's it's a process. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as the crime, uh, Brian Carrick went to work uh, to collect his paycheck and he got some things. He left. He went back to work, though, after having been on the phone because he wanted to talk to someone at the grocery store. And if you go back in time to when this this all happened, the narrative was that he owed money to Mario because Mario was dealing marijuana and Brian owed him money. Um, But in our research, we discovered that people owed Brian money because he was selling drugs. And this wasn't really a mystery back then, but it's just in terms of Brian's not an aggressive guy. He's not known to get in people's faces. And so a lot of people said he'd be more of a pushover when it came to these things. Whereas Mario's connected. Mario wants money. He's going to get it from you because he just happens to have a right-hand man by the name of Shane Lamb who had a long rap sheet and was a, a really tough guy and wasn't afraid to hit somebody if he needed to or even shoot at them. So you put that together and you think, okay, so you got this drug guy, drug dealer, and he's got this enforcer and Brian owes him money, and then he disappears. Well, duh, right? 
But when you actually look into the case and you figure out there's a timeline issue with that, meaning can you place Shane Lamb, Mario, and Brian in the cooler, that's where you start to run into problem one, which is that's not what was happening. In fact, Brian, as we had already established, worked at the grocery store and so did some of his siblings. He had a brother named Eddie Carrick who was actually eating a pizza with Mario at the time this was happening. But you could say even then, well, maybe he had Shane Lamb go and talk to him. But you can't put Shane Lamb there either. It's a real problem. And one of the things uh, that, that should interest people if they're saying, well, where's the compelling aspect of this case? The compelling aspect for me was in the trial. I always say that a trial is a way to have a debate between those who believe one theory and those that believe another, and you hash it out. And whatever the jury comes out believing, well, that's what you end up with. And in this case, they got there by cheating. And so if you go into a trial and you say, okay, I've got all these these uh, time cards from the people that worked at Bowles, and they're interviewing those people on the stand, and then they say, okay, well, you checked out at this time or you checked in at that time and who were you with? Well, all the times they were giving were wrong. And I know this because we have copies of the time cards. And so when they're off by 15 minutes or 30 minutes or whatever they were, you start to think, gee, I wonder why the time cards are off on their side. Because now they can say, well, Mario would have been done in the break room at this point, which gets him right. to the cooler at you know, five minutes afterward, but that's not what happened. And so when we're looking at the time cards, we discovered, or actually, you know, I should say Jake discovered that there was a woman and her name was now no longer among the time cards given by the prosecution and neither was another woman. And then two other names were inserted, which just happened to be the first and middle name of one of those women. So is this like tampering with evidence? I don't know what you want to call it. Yeah. I, I, you know, see, here's the problem with all this. I don't know who gave who what, because a prosecutor is going to get a lot of information from law enforcement before they move on anything. They have to make the call. Am I going to prosecute this person or am I going to sit on this? And in this case, I don't know if law enforcement gave them the wrong information or if the prosecutor used the wrong information on purpose. I have no idea. I do think it's weird, and I think it's something that people should look at and say, okay, so that's why they're wrong. Yeah, you can start there. That's just one part of it, though. Now, Mario is out of jail now. Is that that's correct? Yes, it, it, that's correct. Okay. And, and so he was convicted of murder at one point, and then it was overturned. Yeah, and how long did he spend in jail? Oh, he spent years in prison, and um, it wasn't until Kathleen Zellner got involved that he got out. He was looking at a long sentence, and uh, Kathleen Zellner was able to point out that if the jury um, had had the proper you know, information in front of them, you wouldn't have been able to convict this guy. There were, re there were reasonable doubts throughout. This might seem like a sort of frivolous question, but the time cards that you were mentioning, were those like the old-fashioned time cards that you punch, like the, the yellow cards that you punch into that clock and it like stamps it or, or it uh, creates the, uh, the, the indentation on it? Yes, basically. Yeah. Okay. I was just curious. Were you asking that. because the, could that have been manipulated, the time? Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. and those, those 
I don't know how like difficult it would be. You know, uh, it's probably less difficult if you're using a computer system and you could go in if you're an admin or whatever yeah. and you could change it. But those those like permanent stamps on a time card is probably a little bit more difficult to fake. Yeah, the one of the one one of the women who were dropped, for, you know, on the prosecution side as being involved in, you know, with the time cards and placing Mario in the break room, um, actually contacted us. What'd she have to say? Uh, she's just really glad that we were able to put all this together because um, she wanted to know what had happened. But I didn't ask her about the time card issue, but she's je- definitely the person um, whose first and middle names they took to make other people. I'm getting the feeling that the motive is over owed money based on marijuana sales. Yes. So that makes me think that this murder was probably accidental. Like they wanted to rough rough him up and then it just went too far. Or maybe, you know, someone slipped and he he slipped and hit his head on something. Is that is is that something that is uh in your sort of universe of possibilities? No. That was the state's theory. Ah. So you're you're more on this was a premeditated legit murder. I, I believe the murder was planned that day. Wow, okay. Now, what about the blood evidence um, with uh, that incriminates Rob? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Right. You know, in this day and age with forensic files and people being a lot more aware of what DNA is and fiber evidence and blood evidence and all of this, um, it's really become a thing with true crime. If you look at this case, the only evidence they had was forensic evidence from Brian Carrick and Rob Render. That's it. They didn't have any evidence from Shane Lamb. They didn't have any evidence from Mario Cachero. To even put the case together, um, if you want to talk forensics, that's where it all is. It's all with Rob because he had a thumbprint in blood on the cooler door. And yeah. that's not the only place they found his evidence either. That's just That's just one of the pieces of evidence. And yet they didn't think it too important. Was Rob cut or were there any accounts of him having some kind of injury in the days after uh, Brian went missing? Yeah, we cover that. Unfortunately, the people who were investigating this case never looked at him as a real suspect. In fact, the only time he was even close to being involved in this was when another agency suggested it. But the local police maintained all along that Rob had nothing to do with it. And if he did have anything to do with it, he was just a scared witness. Which I guess you could say, you know, you you could even look at that blood evidence and then still say that. And you could even rationalize his lying afterwards with that same excuse. But that would mean that him and at least one or two other people know exactly what happened. You know, so I, it's just really frustrating that, that the actual truth can't be shaken out of these people. No, they couldn't get him to talk. And some people had tried. But he just wouldn't talk. They're all in the same age range, right? They're all 16, 17, or 18? Yeah, pretty much. That's impressive. Not in a good way, but I think that's impressive that you can get away with this at, at that young of age. Well, and all it takes is for you not to be the focus. If you don't fit into the narrative, then how are you going to be convicted? Yeah, that's true. And if you just keep your mouth shut. Yeah, and enough people know like a little part of the story and they're all lying about it. It just clouds the picture. And everybody was lying. Yeah, no one wanted to implicate themselves or get get themselves involved in any way. 
Um, even that witness um, that with the memory problems, I forget his name, Phil maybe, um, but I uh, Pete, I, I think. It's ironic. <laughs> Phil? That you're forgetting the man <laughs> with the memory problems. Right. right. Well, he at least he had the uh, excuse of age. Yeah, it was Pete DiPiero. Pete, that's right. I knew it. See, I knew it all along. Yeah. <laughs> you corrected are yourself. You, <laughs> are you concerned about your safety or the safety of uh, of Jake or any of the people that have helped you along the way with this? Not at all. Oh, okay. No. I, I don't know why I would be. Um, if this was a conspiracy involving those at the highest levels protecting someone at the highest levels, then I'll be honest, yes, I would be. This is actually a very strange case because most of the time when we ha- we see wrongful convictions that involve a conspiracy and someone's benefiting, usually it's because they're well-connected or have money. In this case, it's sort of the opposite. Yeah. I ask that because I, I know a lot of people will listen to this and they'll, or li- a lot of people will listen to Framed and they'll see just how immersive the entire process was for you and your team. And it's just natural to think, how are they doing this and not looking over their shoulder all the time when you're that entrenched in it? Yeah, not in, not in a case like this, I don't think. And, you know, I've, I've spoken with, a, you know, a reporter from over there in Chicago and she's spoken with everybody uh, connected to this case that, that would, she shouldn't talk to if she was doing an article. And, you know, on, on the state side, they're confident they did everything correctly. And they're good with, you know, what they did. And again, what happened after that? Well, someone else dropped the ball. It wasn't them. And they're in charge. So, I mean, it doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't matter what Framed put out there. It doesn't matter if we, quote unquote, solved the crime. This is a case that, for them, was already solved a long time ago. And everyone else is just batting it around uselessly. Well, it, it matters to us, Aaron. And I take great offense to that. Um, now, Ed, are you going to do another podcast like this anytime soon? Well, we're, we're talking about it. I, you know, I've got various things that I would like to do. Um, but in terms of working with Jake, I'd love to work with him again. He's very easygoing, uh, despite some heated debates here or there, uh, we're both very respectful of one another. And again, for a guy that's never worked on a podcast before, I think he's done an amazing job. Um, and just, we were just very open about every step. If someone had an opinion or they felt strongly about something, um, we just ended up working very well together. How much contact did you have with the Carrick family? Did you speak to the parents at all? Like personally? No, Brian Carrick's parents have, have long since passed on. Oh, sorry. Um, They're no longer around, but he does have many siblings and, um, I'm not going to get in, in just in any kind of specifics here, but they um, I'm not saying all of them, but a number of them are not happy about the show. Oh, well, that's too bad. And uh, it, the best way I can put this is that if you've spent the better part of 15 plus years uh, with your anger directed at a certain party and then someone comes along and says, wait, you're mistaken. It's not so easy just to make a U-turn at that point. Yeah, you're dealing with a lot of emotions, a lot of really intense emotions. And then, like you said, you you just told them they're wrong, uh, so to speak. So, yeah, I can I can see where uh, you may get lashed out at. 
Um, but uh, yeah, it's just because of emotions, I'm sure. Yeah, and we can't take it personally. All we can say is, if you have a question, if you want us to prove something to you, we have all the documentation, and we will back it up. But all I can say is, you know, I feel sorry for the Carrick family. They've had a lot of losses over the years, and um, it's too bad that the state wasn't able to get the correct conviction. A lot of families would uh, would beg for such coverage for their um, loved one, uh, you know, uh, that, you know, went missing or, or murdered or something. And uh, so it's it's I think a great thing that you did, Aaron. And um, if you were going to do another one based on an, a previous case that the Generation Y has covered, uh, do you have a couple off the top of your head that you're not working on? Uh, I have some ideas, but again, this is something that is a collaborative effort, so I can't um, say what I would cover yet because um, we have yet to make a decision. But I I can tell you, um, in terms of what kind of cases we would cover, framed, the name actually comes from framing a narrative. And so we believe that this case went off the rails because the narrative was framed in an incorrect way. And we went through this podcast to show people how those puzzle pieces do not fit together. And then we had to frame the narrative in a way that actually works. So for us, framed, we're actually hanging up something that'll look great. It actually all fits together. And so any case we cover in the future, it has nothing to do with whether someone was framed or not. It has to do with, can we present everything and actually put the case together to show you the truth of something? Yeah. Is there a certain amount of information out there? You know, that I'm sure it's actually a pretty uh, strict criteria to do what you did with this. And probably not a lot of cases actually fit that mold. It just depends. You know, I mean, some cases have a lot more information available than people would think. Um, yeah. And some and some cases have a lot more just because of the popularity of them. You had a lot of reporters or just people, armchair detectives, looking things up and, you know, requesting uh documents yeah i like the way you put that with uh you know there's information out there and it's just the way you put it or not just the way but it's the way you put together your narrative that is ultimately going to be the perception uh the lasting perception of the of this particular case or any case that has a lot of information out there but if you assemble it a little differently then you might have something that you just never saw before because you never thought to assemble it differently yeah, so the, the key is to follow the evidence and to yeah. make sure that things fit in a timeline correctly. Otherwise, you know, it's not going to hold together. Your picture is not going to look right. Did you hear from any uh, current law enforcement not associated with this case who were like, dude, great job. This is, this is how you do it. A little bit. A little Yeah, a couple. But, um, you know, it seems to me that... Uh, police officers often get a bad rap because as you know, we cover cases that tend to have been messed up. And so it's not really a fair uh, look at law enforcement. If you just look at the cases we cover, but you know, I think they do a great job in many cases and we just don't hear about them because they were solved correctly and closed uh, fairly swiftly and everything was done above board. Um, but we have law enforcement that have written into us and said, yeah, you guys did a great job with this. Um, I And I've had law enforcement say, yeah, if, if law enforcement messes up, you have to call them out on it. They're people. 
and mm-hmm. not yep. all of them are actually on our side. Just because they wear a badge doesn't necessarily mean they're on my side. I mean, I, I, I can't tell you many people I've talked with who wear the badge and say, I don't want to be a part of something that's illegal. You know, I'm here to uphold the law. And some of these people, have, this has been their dream since they were kids. They wanted to grow up and be a police officer. I think for most of them, there are a lot of uh, great men and women behind that badge. It's just we don't get to hear about them usually because we tend to cover cases where things were screwed up. Yeah, good point. It's like the uh, the third base coach in baseball. Like you, or uh, the yeah, the, the third base coach. You only know the third base coach in baseball if he's doing a bad job. You don't hear about all the ones doing a good job, or unless he's like really flamboyant with his wind up, like yeah. sending people home. Like maybe that way. Yeah, exactly. Wendell Kim, Wendell, notable. Wave, wave him in, Wendell. Yeah, notable. <laughs> Third base coach. <laughs> well, thank you very much for joining us here today, Aaron. We really appreciate it. Well, it's always great to talk to both of you. And keep up the good work. It's uh, it's an amazing uh, construction of the case and amazing uh, storytelling. So um, excellent job with it. Keep up the good work, dude. You guys keep up the great work.